Have you heard the term gut health? It comes up a lot lately. The basic principle, as I understand it so far, is that a lot of the ways we've been treating symptoms and pathology in the human body for a long time has had root causes in the organ systems of our midsection that we never fully understood. It seems there's a lot we don't understand about it, but part of its value is that it's helped a lot of people re-engineer how they think about their overall health. In my life, there have only been a couple of examples that I can think of when I ask myself, in what ways has modern society made an attempt to change a whole axiom on which systems are built? In this case, we've long assumed, I guess, that the heart and the brain were the leading role in the story. I'm no expert on this, but gut health is a talking point that I now hear a lot of doctors covering that presents a new lens that's different enough from how we've thought previously to redo ways of thinking about our body as a system. This episode has nothing to do with gut health, except maybe one thing. For a long time, it seems, we've been tying ourselves in knots around this idea of work-life balance. Ultimately, for me at least, it comes down to how we as individuals manage the tension between the transactional outside world where historically money, influence, professional striving have all taken place, and the inner world where fulfillment and value and connection exist. The way I'm interpreting the life's work of my guest is to help us question whether we've got the right root cause. What if purpose, a word ubiquitous on the self-help shelves, was the gut health right under our noses? Meet Aaron. Hi, this is Aaron Hurst. I am excited to be here to talk about my new venture, Purpose Mindset. If you're an education researcher, a teacher, a parent like me, chances are you spend a lot of time questioning why sometimes in our own and our children's development, it feels like we're putting together a jigsaw puzzle. Only in this one, the pieces have dropped onto the table from a bunch of different boxes. Why have letter grades become so important and yet Employers tell kids we care more about durable skills. Why do so many high achieving students fail to find meaning in their career? Is it because purpose and our function to the machine of industrialized society are no longer compatible? What if there were other ways to organize our thinking that could help us start from a new vantage point? Aaron Hurst is an award-winning social entrepreneur, the author of The Purpose Economy. He is one of the foremost experts on the science of purpose and fulfillment, he founded the Taproot Foundation, the venture-backed Imperative, and has recently launched Purpose Mindset. He began his career working in education in Chicago. He authored Fast Company's Purposeful CEO series and has written or been featured in The Times, The Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg TV, in more places than I'll list here. But check out our show notes for a full bio and links to PurposeMindset.org. I hope you get as much as I did from my conversation with Aaron. A quick offer before we get started. If you write No Such Thing Podcast, a review, and use your name, I'm going to run a raffle in the next few weeks. The person chosen will get free ad space on not one, but two upcoming episodes. Maybe you have a new book or some research you want to make people aware of, an event upcoming that's relevant to our show, or you're looking for participants in an upcoming program. New York, New Jersey educators, here's one now. Amazing opportunity, April 14th 
and 15th. If you are in the New York area, you have an opportunity to join an amazing day of creative STEAM learning adventures. It's the Invent to Learn New York City, New Jersey with Microbit workshops. Sylvia Martinez and Gary Steger will be here training educators on the marriage of Microbit and block-based MakeCode software that makes an amazing array of projects possible for learners of all ages. If you register for the Jersey City Workshop Friday, April 14th, or the New York City Workshop Saturday, April 15th, and use the code no such thing, you will get 10% off. Again, code no such thing, you'll get 10% off. Details in the show notes for this episode. Let's help each other. Again, head to your platform of choice. Apple is my preferred because it's our biggest refer. And I'll choose from reviews posted on or after March of 2023. This raffle ends May 1st. Don't miss out. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. Aaron, congrats on the formal launch of Purpose Mindset. Um, I saw the announcement last week. I'm really curious for folks who don't know you to just have you share your journey to arrive at this moment where you're really focused on Purpose Mindset, uh, different from some of your, your previous ventures. So I'm actually curious because I get to do some fun research on on people yeah. and kind of see where the journey started. I am actually curious because you have service learning uh, as a citation on your CV. And I'm curious how that started at University of Michigan. Yeah, no, thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. I have never been a fan of classroom learning. Um, I always did well enough, but it was just never something that I got a lot out of. It felt more performative. And when I went to the University of Michigan as a student, um, I was actually able to create a program where we took Michigan students, so my peers, out to local correctional facilities to teach creative writing hmm. and built that up over two years and it expanded every semester. And we had more and more students helping more and more folks um, in the local criminal justice system and then tied it back to a curriculum I developed with the Aspen Institute and with other fac with faculty at, at Michigan. And what I heard just about every single time from students was it was their best favorite class at the University of Michigan. Um, so much so that we actually won the Michigan, uh, what is it called, the Michigan Campus Compact Award, which was sort of the top social impact teaching in the state. Um, and to me, that just really sparked the sort of the power of service learning um, and how our educational system has the whole the whole system upside down. Hmm. And that if we actually made service uh, at the core of what we do um, as educators, it would have a much, much greater impact, not just on students, but on society. Yeah, I noticed um, this is a this is a curveball. If you don't remember, I'll, I'll cut it right out. But I. <laughs> You may remember that you won a, an award for an essay uh, called The Devil Made Me Do It. That is true. Do you remember what that was about? I do. That was the Hopwood Award, um, which I think was my sophomore year. And it was um, it was about race. So this is back in like 93, mm -hmm. 94, maybe. Um, and it was sort of. My my journey around sort of identity, um, having been raised Buddhist, but actually being of a Jewish upbringing mm -hmm. and sort of growing up in sort of emerging hip hop culture outside of Detroit 
and just really my uh, my journey trying to figure out who the hell I am um, and what is my identity. So I wrote about that, and uh, um, I'm amazed you found that. I don't even know where you could find such it's a thing. It's out there. So. Um, it's hard hitting. <laughs> over. I don't know if you're actually able to find the actual essay. I'd probably be embarrassed if I saw that today, but um, no. But I looked hard. Um, yeah, it's fun. I think the first, I mean, it's right now it's like wildly embarrassing if it was actually ever public, but I think I, I was actually born, my parents were living in a teepee outside of Aspen. And, um, I think I opened the whole thing and sort of talk like with some sort of reference to not knowing my identity, having sort of been basically born in a teepee, um, and, um, identifying with like all these different races and backgrounds, which now is cultural appropriation times 1000, but, um, right. it was, Anyway, it'd be fun to go find that. I have to go dig through my uh, closets and see if I can find it. I'm actually really glad that I asked because it does now knowing you a little bit. We've talked a few times and uh, you just shared a a, a piece for me that um, I feel like fills in some gaps for me about where, <laughs> where you're <laughs> not the TP part so much, no. um, but uh, the it, the the motivation and and engagement with identity right and um which i think comes out when we start to talk about um the rest so you go you go from that young life thinking yeah. about identity service learning comes becomes a part of it um taproot emerges um tell me about the journey from taproot to here at yeah purpose the purpose yeah, economy yeah, Mark, just before I jump to that, I did actually try right out of college to do work in education and just mm -hmm. got really frustrated because I was working in nonprofits in Chicago that were supporting the educational system. Yeah. And it just felt so broken and I felt like such small band-aids that it really sort of struck me at the age of 21 that I couldn't continue down that path. I would just be banging my head against a wall and yeah. wanted to understand how do you actually achieve scale? Um, how do you actually do something on a big enough scale to matter? So in 97, I moved to Silicon Valley and worked in two venture-backed startups where I really sort of learned all about scaling and what does it take to actually do something on a scale that like truly could move a needle. Mm. And through that experience that I saw two things that I think are really important to this journey. One was, um, yes, nonprofits need money and more of it, but they also need access to professional talent from marketing, tech, HR, that they often couldn't afford. And also that technology leadership is, despite all the conversations about it being cutting edge and progressive, like is pretty isolated and pretty like clueless. And sort of going back to my days in service learning felt like if we could actually have emerging leaders in the tech industry and in business, be exposed to the nonprofit sector, it would really fundamentally change mm. you know, how we see the world. So that's where you know Taproot came from. Uh, it was right after 9-11, I just saw this incredible thirst for people to want to make their work meaningful. They saw those first responders, um, they saw the people doing work to help um, after 9-11 and sort of questioned, huh, I'm an accountant, like why does my work matter? Mm. Or I'm an HR, why does my work matter? And we're looking for a way to, to to grow, to give it, to give back, and uh, Tapu really came out of that that quest, and we built up this nonprofit, ultimately global, around helping people use their professional skills to help nonprofits and NGOs around the world with with those same needs in marketing, tech, HR, um, and it was it was wildly successful because I think there was so much demand on the nonprofit side and corporate side, but what ultimately 
sort of struck me as I was doing that work was that one, we were helping all these nonprofits and still I would argue education's not so great. <laughs> we still have major issues around housing, security, poverty, like was it actually moving the needle? And then when I talked to the business professionals about why they were doing pro bono work, what they said over and over and over again was because my work isn't fulfilling. Mm. And at first, that was an interesting marketing insight for how to market to them. Is your work not fulfilling? Try the Taproot Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I sort of stepped back and thought about what that actually meant, it meant that this sort of fundamental structure and way in which we approach what we do for 40 plus hours a day is not working. And that in some ways, what I had created was a vitamin to make up for people eating at McDonald's. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people having vitamin makes it okay for them to eat at McDonald's. And I realized I wanted to go and try to fix the entree. I wanted to fix work itself. So I left Taproot, wrote the purpose economy to really make the business case that purpose is not just about a cause. It's actually a fundamental human need and that businesses that address that need in consumers as well as in uh, their uh, employee base we're going to be the ones that are going to thrive and then start working to do research around, you know, purpose at work with NYU, the University of Michigan, PwC, LinkedIn, trying to really understand the science behind purpose at work. Um, ultimately got venture funding, scaled the company imperative. But um, what I found about five years ago, Mark, which brings us to today mm -hmm. is that um, I was looking and hoping that there was something you could do in the workplace that would really make a big difference. Um, that there is some way to rearrange the furniture, to change management, to help people find better jobs. But what really came back is that actually the number one variable is inside people, not outside of people. Hmm. That we found that there were these two different mindsets, a transactional mindset and a purpose mindset. And the people with a purpose mindset on average, 66% were fulfilled. So roughly two thirds of people with a transactional mindset, 14% mm. were fulfilled. This was not a question of like margin of error. This was like dramatically different mm. outcomes. And basically you could take someone with a purpose mindset, put them in an accounting job and they would find meaning. You could take someone with a transactional mindset, put them in the classroom teaching and they wouldn't find meaning. Mm. That finally the mindset was dictating whether or not they were creating meaning for themselves. And it really occurred to me that if we're actually gonna fix work, we first have to fix mindset because mm. that's really the core issue. And it sort of became this journey of trying to understand mindset and um, how and when we can actually change it, which really brings us to today, to your question, um, and you know, launching Purpose Mindset with a mission to, to really ensure the next generation enters the workforce with a, with a purpose mindset because adults, frankly, don't change mindset easily. Um, we're stubborn bastards and we generally don't like to change. And I think our best, and actually the only time you see change, Mark, is at that sort of midlife crisis point. Hmm. Um, the only place we saw a measured difference is at about the age of 55. Um, before that, there was almost no difference um, in mindset, um, it, despite interventions. So our best hope, I believe, and the biggest opportunity I believe in society right now is if we could switch from about 63% of people being transaction mindset today to having the majority of people have a purpose mindset, it would impact every single metric we care about, not just in education, but the environment, um, civic engagement, economic growth. Like this, this transactional mindset is, I think, a sickness in our society that is causing a tremendous amount of pain. I think people need to understand what transactional mindset means in in basic terms like can you give, give me an example of um give me an example of how uh, one approaches the world as a through a transaction mindset yeah i think a transaction mindset is about seeing the world as a zero-sum game 
and it's seeing everything as performative, um, as sort of being almost like a game in and of itself. So, I mean, the most simple example of this just in a business environment would be sales. So people with a transactional mindset in sales are just focused solely on hitting the numbers and sort of achieving you know, sales outcomes. Um, mm-hmm. People with a purpose mindset are focused on understanding the real needs of customers, building a relationship with them, um, being able to deliver them a product or service that is actually helpful to them. And what's interesting is people think, oh, well, but the transactional mindset people sell more because they're focused on the sale. That's actually not true. Um, what studies have shown is actually when you have that purpose mindset in sales, it actually makes you a better seller and more fulfilled yourself. So that's sort of an example from, I think, a profession and role where it's like most stark. Let's, um, what are some examples you and I could think of at a younger age, right? So um, is the transactional mindset, the, um, maybe I had a doppelganger out there as a 16 year old who was, really fired up to um, take all the AP classes and uh, just to have them and to always have the the grades as high as humanly possible. And um, like, is, is that the transactional mindset version of me, which wasn't, is if, wasn't me, by the way? <laughs> um, it is if your motivation was I need to get grades, good grades to prove myself to my parents, to get respect. Um, and you sort of fundamentally like the goal of actually learning, the goal of actually learning about yourself, um, the goal of doing doing that work because you wanted to ultimately be able to help others wasn't the motivation. If it was purely like a game and it was purely about like proving yourself to other people, that's what makes it transactional. Yeah. And it was truly about, and I think especially if it starts to become, I'm taking AP because I want to show that I can do better than my brother who didn't take AP, or mm-hmm. I want to be, you know, outperform the rest of the students in my class. Like you see this as a, everything is a competition. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so my next question is when purpose mindset, the organization succeeds, what yeah. has been achieved? Yeah. So if purpose mindset is successful, it's a great question. Um, I think what we would see is that purpose mindset is not only as ubiquitous as growth mindset in our educational system, but I think it gets a step further than growth mindset did in that it actually, I think, is implemented in classrooms and with parents in a way in which we're actually seeing change in outcomes. So for me, I'm looking at, you know, ultimately, how do we measure the percentage of students graduating with a purpose mindset? Um, as being a measure. And when that happens, given the data we've seen, um, we're going to see higher sort of mental health outcomes. We're going to see um, higher performance outcomes. We're going to see higher fulfillment outcomes. And those will have a ripple effect into society where we will stop having a society that's built on fear. And we start to have a society that's built on self-awareness, compassion, and hope. Um, because people won't just be constantly operating from a deficit. They'll mm-hmm. actually start to see the world through a sense of abundance. So you can imagine the ripple effect. When you pick any issue um, that we have in the world right now, I mean, you can you know pick up the New York Times and just look at any given article, and you see the sort of transactional mindset is leading to like 
the inequalities that we see in the world. It's leading to people lacking the courage to like actually stand up and make trade-offs around the environment. Um, it's leading to a lot of the racial divides that we're seeing in the world. I think a lot of those just stem from this fear-based model, this idea that there's a scarcity um, and that you're you, know, you have to fight for fight for what's yours. Um, that is you know is pulling us apart. Yeah, I hear a a lot of people talk about um, so. Let's say you. Uh, succeed with a transactional mindset and you graduate from a great four-year college. Um, There's the problem in my mind of, and a lot of people's minds of uh, unemployment for those who have graduated a four-year with a four-year degree has never been higher. Um, And I hear a lot of people, you know, and that would line up with, with in a way with what you're describing with just people's satisfaction and, and motivations, right? Like Mm -hmm. if the perception, um, if, if we're looking something, looking for something as college graduates and not finding it out in the, in the world, whether it's corporate or nonprofit or anywhere else, then there's a, a gap there. But I hear a lot of people from the other side talk about it as like kids today, you know, they don't want to work. They don't want to, um, how does that line up for you with what, what you believe is the really important nugget of purpose mindset here? Um, and what do you think people are missing when they sort of toss it off to like, Oh, it's a generational problem. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm old enough now that I've seen multiple generations enter the workforce and every single time it's pretty much the same narrative about them. So you start right. to recognize a pattern that this has more to do with us that are getting older talking about younger people than it is about any one generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that pattern is very, very clear to me. Uh, the other thing I would say is that a lot of what we're seeing as what we think is purpose in sort of generations today that are entering the workplace is actually pretty performative. And it's driven a lot by social media and this need to project yourself as a good person. Mm-hmm. And it's showing an interest in purpose as a form of status and as a form of belonging to a club versus necessarily psychologically actually um, optimizing your life around that. So yeah. we're seeing yeah. a lot of that happening. And then we're also just seeing, I think there's you know, a real divide, but we're seeing a lot of people becoming cynical about, you know, can work actually be a source of meaning for me? Um, and I think that's really unfortunate because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And one of the studies we did at Imperative um, actually looked at, can people be fulfilled in life if they're not fulfilled at work? Hmm. And what we found is that people fulfilled in life, so people who said, yeah, I'm fulfilled in life, only 1% said they weren't fulfilled at work. Hmm. And I think there's this myth that somehow we can get our fulfillment and needs for meaning met outside of work, but that's just really not the way we operate as human beings because it's more about how we process our experiences than it is the actual thing that we're doing. Mm. Um, So, you know, I I worry about the sort of growing narrative, I think, in this, this generation entering the workforce about trying to diminish the role of work in their lives because I don't think ultimately that's gonna be um, successful. That said, I mean, certainly the model of working 10, 12 hour days of having your life be all about work is also, you know, which has been dominant for quite a while is also not healthy. So, um, I get the reaction to that. Yeah. I have a, I have a, I think this lines up with what you were describing. Um, I have a family member, a young, young family member who's a fairly recent college graduate and he works for one of the big, um, consulting groups. And, um, 
what I was surprised by is that they actually use the pro bono, the I'm using yeah. air quotes, pro bono work um, as kind of like the carrot, like you, yeah. you kill it with all your projects and you get some time to work on uh, kind of purpose-driven work. And I think that's a char- characterization of what you're describing, right? The the idea that yeah. like this is like a vitamin you take every once in a while in order to keep you going on on the path to a transactional some yep. kind of transactional fulfillment, which actually, you know, likely doesn't come. Um, yeah, I think what you're seeing there is just, yeah, it's again, it's that it is that use. And we hear it talking to CEOs all the time of when you say, like, well, what are you doing to like help your employees have their work be meaningful? Mm. Fulfilling, they point to volunteerism, they point to pro bono. They don't point to the fact that like the core of what someone's doing. Um, isn't necessarily creating that positive value in the world. They're not pointing to the relationships people are having at work. They're not pointing to how people are growing at work. They're mm-hmm. not actually taking responsibility for the work itself. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's really, um, it's really, really challenging because we spend so much time at work and for that kind of that frame on work to dominate is really problematic. It's also, I found very classist. We see a lot our sort of uh, upper class, upper middle class management mm-hmm. sort of assuming people who have less means, like that somehow meaning and fulfillment's not important to them or it's a luxury mm-hmm. and they're just so desperate for money that just any work is fine. Um, and I think that that myth is incredibly dangerous and it is very, very much driven by class and a lack of sort of true understanding of other people's paths. I think that's one of the most dominant dominant myths in our society is that purpose is a luxury. And I think a lot of that was driven by Maslow's hierarchy as sort of a frame for it. But anyone who's done work abroad or in sort of communities with lesser income, uh, you find a lot of those people have a hell of a lot more purpose than people in a corporate boardroom. Um, we just have that whole we have that whole paradigm wrong. So let's talk about the word mindset for a second, because I think it's key to what obviously we're we're you are working to achieve through uh, purpose mindset as an organization and as a, uh, can I use the word movement? Yes, I would hope you would. Um, so I looked at a few definitions for mindset and here's one I liked. A mindset is a series of self-perceptions or beliefs people hold about themselves. These determine behavior, outlook, and mental attitude. Would you add nuance to that? I think that's pretty solid. I mean, I think that the belief is a really important part because I think that's that's the the sort of foundation of it, um, and that's why it's so hard to change because beliefs are very hard to change yeah. in people. So yeah, I think that um, I think that's right. I mean, when we talk about purpose mindset, we talk about it being a set of beliefs that enable us to optimize our lives to be fulfilled and in service to people and the planet. So it's really sort of it's about that set of beliefs, but it's that that then enables you to optimize your life because mm. um, it enables you to make choices, to process information, to change behavior such that you're prioritizing, acknowledging your need for fulfillment. So purpose is not just about others. It's also about serving yourself because um, we need to take care of ourselves. Um, it's an absolutely critical part of a purpose driven life and being in service to others. And um, that's why I think that it all stems from that word belief. As I think about the definition. So I did I did a little exercise, which I do from time to time, especially yeah. when um, like I, I try as best I can with this show to 
get beyond, you know, sometimes we can jargonize ideas in, yep. particularly in K-12 education. We love, <laughs> we love a good, a good bit of, of jargon. And so I did a trend search on Google for the last 20 years of just the word mindset. And there's like, as you would imagine, um, there's a, a doubling at least of interest in the term mindset in that span of time. Yeah. And um, what's interesting to me is that it's 50 years after Carol Dweck started publishing research around growth mindset. And um, if you, so what I started to wonder is if you think of terms of language and, and like, uh, if, if people want to call them jargon, like if we think about them as products for a second, yep. where the market is kind of demanding a new way of describing things, um, how would you describe the demand for driving interest in mindset? Like, why is yeah. that, why is that a big idea for people? So, I mean, you're the expert in education, Mark, like I'm, I'm coming at this and I want to sort of acknowledge, you know, I did early work in education. I've been focused more on the corporate environment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think what I've seen on the corporate side, the interest around it is that we're seeing so much constant change in the skills that people need in the workplace. Um, and we're seeing an environment in which technology turns over so quickly um, that as CEOs, we're seeing that we need a workforce that is incredibly agile. Um, the skills someone graduates with, most of them will not be relevant in five to 10 years. And that became more and more clear um, and more and more CEOs frustrated with a workforce that just comes in saying like, I am an accountant with this set of skills and assuming hmm. that's gonna serve them for 50 years. Um, instead of you know having people who are able to adapt and learn new technologies, new ways of working to support digital transformation. And mindset became a frame in which uh, I think executives were able to signal to employees like a desire for agility hmm. and a desire to not have to rehire people every three years because their existing people didn't upskill and change to, to fit into a role and that they had developed fixed mindsets around certain professions. So mindset really, I think on the workforce side came out of that need for business transformation and for the rapid changing of skills. Hmm. Uh, I can say as a parent what over the last 20 years, because my kids are 14 and 17, what's been attractive to me about it was I had been raised with the fixed mindset narrative to a large degree. Like you determine what you're good at and like that's end of end of discussion. Mm. And um, I love just as a parent that ability of seeing infinite potential um, in in my kids. And also just, you know, encouraging them that hard work was going to be, you know, what enables them to get something so they couldn't just write something off as not possible because nothing pains you more as a parent than having your kid think that something's not possible for them. So I think it's very attractive from that standpoint as a parent. Um, what's your take on why in the educational world it's taken off? You know, I think that I have a similar hypothesis, which which is that we have reinvented about a thousand times ways to call skills that are hard to assess. Mm -hmm. And I think the more we realize that the more conversations happen between employers and education, the more re we realize that it, it's not just in, in individual skills that are missing. Um, I think what, what is being suggested is that it's actually there's a system that's missing, 
right? Yeah. And we, we talk about soft skills, which is, is really not one thing. It's a system of things that kind of work together. And I, so my take in this moment, and I'll reserve the right to totally change my mind, uh, which I'm apt, <laughs> I do from time to time, but is, um, is that it's another way to reinvent talking about a system um, that's really hard to assess, Growth mindset is a really good example where um, I was part of the field at a time when we all obsessed a little bit over how are we going? We all programs need to assess growth mindset and how are we going to do yeah. that? Um, and I and it it turns out um, that if you explain what growth mindset is to a teenager, I, I learned this the hard way. Um, and then you assess them on whether or not they are. Uh, of growth mindset, they are killing it. They they self describe as being growth mindset, like breaking scales. So um, so it's a very you know it's a I I laugh, but it was a really good lesson that you know we had groups that we that knew what they were all hearing it at school, and so they knew it was the thing. It was like yes and so they turned that into a performative um element and started just answering the assessment as though they they crushed it because they were trained to want to crush the assessment even though this was not consequential in that way i think that's absolutely right it was interesting i was talking to david yeager who's a professor at ut austin i think he was at stanford before that and worked mm -hmm. with um carl dweck and others and what he found was that actually the using the language a purpose and growth mindset, or sorry, growth mindset and fixed mindset um, was actually problematic with students and yeah. found that actually you get better outcomes and you never mention it. Um, and especially because kids at this point are somewhat allergic to it um, because it's been pushed so hard. Yeah. But the yeah. more look at the underlying behaviors and language and that that's what uh, teachers and parents need to pick up on. Um, when you put it into just like a label, it actually undermines the ability for it to be adopted. Um, and they also found that whenever you label something as a dichotomy between two things that that tends to also um, anyone who tends towards the fixed or in the case of the work we're doing transactional mindset immediately feels alienated and doesn't feel like they feel like they're entrenched in their point of view instead of changing. Mm. Um, so I think what's really interesting, I was, this is one of the things that's really um, I'm struggling with with purpose mindset um, is from a communications movement adoption of, um, of, of an idea um, simplicity is really important. Uh, talking about a lot of gray area, like just completely like loses people's interest. Yeah. Um, so we need growth and fix. We need purpose and transactional. That is absolutely critical for anything you study about marketing, anything you study about actually enabling a movement to work. Um, but the opposite is true when it comes to the implementation of it, which is when you oversimplify it, when you focus on the language in a classroom, people can do what you describe, which is figure out the right multiple choice answer to the question after you told them what it is, but they're not actually necessarily building that mindset. Mm. So um, it's almost like we've got to hide the vitamins <laughs> in the food um, for it to work. Mm. Um, going back to my old analogy, and I think that's a really interesting challenge. It's like, how do you leverage the power of language for the movement for parents and teachers to understand, but then tell them to never use those words <laughs> with kids <laughs> and um, use different things. Right. Um, so you need to find a way for those two to coexist because I think a lot of educational systems have lacked the language to market them to be able to take off as a zeitgeist um, effectively. Like I think about social and emotional learning, like mm. 
there's no like, what is success there? It's like, it's just really amorphous, unclear. When I talk about transactional versus purpose mindset, people like immediately get that and they can talk about it and have aha moments. Um, they need that kind of, um, these, these two poles of good and bad mm. um, to get there, but that's not the right intervention. So that's, I think, one of the things we're going to continue to struggle with as we as we uh, take this work forward. Yeah. So I think an interesting, maybe maybe a future conversation um, yeah. after we've had some time to to go deep. But I think an interesting use case there would be to dig deep on um, the use of the acronym STEM. Because um, I think if you look at that history, it really did start as a very sort of political, um, like, how do I bring lay people around the, the you know, then idea that we're going to build into policy around, you know, connecting some of these uh, lesser attended to um, core areas, math and, and yeah. science. And um, and now when if you ask a practitioner like so what are you doing for stem it means something very specific in their mind and it it's not necessarily math or engineering it's like this other thing that has has no one definition and it kind of like has to look and feel a certain way it, i have to say words like makerspace to substantiate it and um, and it's really hard because it served an important purpose in helping people put their head around it and and um, understand what it means for their practice. Like, oh, okay, I see. So we're talking about something that's a little bit more um, transdisciplinary. We're talking about building some of the core into these more kind of project-based based notions of practice. Yeah. Uh, so it had use there, but then it also, like like you described, um, if we went into STEM and told everybody, look, STEM is an important idea, but it's it's Voldemort when you go into the classroom. Like, we do not mention STEM. Yep. I think it might have had a very different effect than, than what it ultimately did, which was to water some things down. Yeah, I think it's... It's like what needs to happen at different levels of conversation. Um, and it's also just looking at like the STEM movement. I mean, there's a lot of different components to that, but you know, I think a big part of it was an anti-humanities movement. And I think humanities are a big part of how purpose is cultivated. It's through, you know, work like reading novel, like reading, you know, great literature where you reflect on society, you reflect on characters, you reflect on yourself. Um, we really push school to be about setting kids up to be human resources. And STEM has been very much about this frame of people as human resources versus human beings. And I think this has actually led to a rise in transactional mindset. Um, and it's not to diminish the importance of science, technology, engineering, and math. Those are all important uh, fields and they were underinvested in, but it's it's become, I think it, it came in a way in which it actually diminished, I think, purpose and it diminished the humanities. Amen, yes. <laughs> which, you know, I think that's the way our society is. We tend to go too far in one direction, swing back and forth. And that's, you know, just, that's nature. It's well, tides. So that's a perfect segue to where I, um, I want to shift a little bit in the last yeah. few minutes of our conversation to the question of equity. And it, it's going to take me a second to, to get there. But um, I talk to a lot of education leaders who believe that if we do a good enough job aligning skills development with what industry needs will empower students to overcome whatever challenges exist within their circumstance, right? We, we haven't 
done a great job dialing this in because it's hard to align industry leaders to education leaders on skills. Um, but let's let's say we succeed and we figure out what those those skills are. Um, first question is, do you think purpose mindset should be the brick we build skills onto or the other way around? That's assuming we go beyond mere employment as our ideal student outcome. Yeah. Well, I think you start off I mean, to that point. Growth and purpose mindset to me are the definition of a quality education. If someone mm-hmm. graduates with those two mindsets, that sets them up to have the motivation, the sort of character and values, the confidence and autonomy, as well as the curiosity to succeed no matter what they you know aim to do. Um, I think the one thing that's very, very evident in the workplace, and I was just talking to my friend Kelly Palmer, who's uh, one of the experts in this whole skills movement. Mm. These skills are changing so dramatically, like on an almost annual basis, that this whole idea of preparing for industry um, is, it's important, but it is very, very temporary. And if you're just getting people to be performatively able to do that skill, um, they are very quickly going to be obsolete. And that's where I say that the foundation is 1000% purpose and growth mindset. Um, and we need to be able to measure that. And if we don't achieve that, if someone gets all A's, um, you know, and appears to, you know, have learned all the skills, but they don't have those two mindsets, I think we'll see them be successful, but for a very short period of time. Yeah. And uh, I think that's where the system is way too short-sighted when they're focused on skills. I just read a great blog post that I will cite in the show notes. Um but about boot camps, tech, uh, mostly you know, coding boot camps, which, as everybody knows, ten years ago was the solution to every problem. Oh, uh, in the world. And this post was a great reflection on the gut punch to boot camps that uh, the the uh, how skills actually played out has been. And so, um, you know, folks, mm, folks figuring out that they spent a lot on boot camps, and then it turns out that a lot of those skills were actually totally irrelevant by the time they hit the job market or, or maybe shortly after they hit the job market and were well qualified to do one thing that quickly became outdated. And so I think that speaks very, very uh, clearly to your point. Yeah, I mean, there's computational yeah. thinking, which I think is helpful. I mean, I one of my first jobs in Silicon Valley was doing coding, which I self-taught. And it definitely it has served me throughout my life to just understand those basics. Um, but I think it's also important to understand the basics of law and the basics of a lot of other of medicine, the basics of teaching. Like these all, like, I think ideally when you're successful, especially as a leader, you bring sort of a baseline of a lot of those sort of ways of seeing the world. That's really what it is, is teaching a way of seeing the world um, and being able to be flexible in your ability to go in and out of those systems so that you can relate to other people and find creative ways to solve problems. Yeah, to, to that point, uh, there's a there's a, um, there's a dissertation I'll never write <laughs> about why... When I was meeting all of the most successful um, developers in the tech space 10 and 20 years ago, none of them had computer science degrees. Um, they were all – I had so many friends who were becoming extremely successful, were music majors, were exactly. um, you know studied an instrument or studied philosophy, came into it. 
And um, it's really interesting because I think purpose mindset in a way is it fills a little bit of a gap in my dissertation. Um, Mm. Because if I look at what probably drove all of those people to the field, it was being motivated by something they were both um, compelled to contribute because they thought they could put something really cool into the world, um, but also because they thought... I'm going to add this know-how and skill to my identity, you know, identity forming um, for them to be able to do this thing that was an extension of their creativity. Um, That doesn't lead me to a question, but it just, it's more (laughs) a realization. No, I think that that's like a really, um, really, really powerful. And yeah, no, I, it's amazing how deep rooted, deep rooted that is. And one, just an example, just along these lines, Mark. Um, so I got my actual degree from Michigan. It was called bachelor in general studies. Mm. Um, and I remember when I, you know, and I did it on service learning cause there was no degree offered in that. So it enabled me to create what I wanted to. And I remember I did an interview, I think it was with Deloitte when I was on campus and, uh, the woman who was interviewing, she starts off saying, yeah, my husband, and I call it the bullshit degree. That was like <laughs> the opening, the opening, point like in the interview, which um, needless to say, I did not get the job. I think that's not too surprising. Right. Um, it's interesting. I won the University of Michigan uh, Humanitarian Award, which is like the top award the university gives out to alumni. And there was an event where there were, you know, maybe a half a dozen of us that were receiving the award. And I remember, I think it was like three or four of us had bachelor's in general studies. The degree that was considered the like bogus degree actually was the one that had produced the people that actually made a difference in the world. And um, to me, that was incredibly telling. And I talked to a lot of students like, I don't know what to major in. And I'm like, major in curiosity, like just find a way to have flexibility in a system and like just follow what you're curious. Taking a bunch of required classes in large lecture halls is rarely a source of anything besides um, a nap. Yeah. So my next question as a human listening to you say that is like, yeah, why don't we have a degree in curiosity? Um, I had a great conversation with a a friend and and former colleague, Bernard Bull, who um, he he surprising himself, I think, took a job as the president of Goddard College, which uh-huh. in, in Vermont. And, and at the time, one of the things that I didn't realize about Goddard College was that there there really aren't any two de- two degrees alike like kids don't really graduate with cool. the same degree twice and um man that conversation really really uh shaped a lot in my mind about what's possible but also hearing his struggle to maintain that set of ideals as a yep. as a leader in that space in an infrastructure that was totally um kind of i don't i don't even know antithetical to that and um it's really fascinating look forward to listening to that all the pathing that you know someone wants to go to law school medical school like there's a certain set of uh signals that that kind of customization doesn't enable um but a lot of that's like pressure from parents into these paths um we did a survey of students at three universities um uh it was grinnell michigan and the, I think it was the University of the Pacific hmm. out here in Seattle and found 31% of students said they'd rather major in a purpose than a subject. Wow. And you I don't know exactly. Yeah. Michigan, Cornell? Cornell? I think it was the um, Seattle Pacific University. That's okay. the name of it, um, which is a, uh, uh, I think it's a Catholic school um, out here. So it's sort of different, big state school, you know, 
smaller liberal arts and then a, a, a religious-based uh, school. And it was just interesting that 31% said they wanted a major and a purpose That's instead of a subject, which I think would be a really interesting design studio to do with uh, leaders in um, higher ed around, like, what would a major and purpose mean? Yeah. Um, what is that actually? I think that is a major in curiosity, in part. Um, it's a it's a major in self awareness. Um, it's a major in mindset. I think it's it's I think a much more interesting outcome. Um, it doesn't fit nicely into pre med or pre law, um, but I think very very compelling. When I when when that um, room comes together, can I throw my hat in my my name in the hat for because uh, I would love. To participate in that conversation, what do it at your house next week? Next, oh Thursday. my gosh, it yep. sounds fantastic. Yeah, um, really... Here's where I, I was hoping to land with just to zoom back out for a second. What's the brightest future you can imagine with purpose mindset as a driver? It's a civil society. I mean, it's a society that is again, it just operates out of hope and love and compassion and a sense of ambition for the ability to to make a difference. Um, I think ultimately, it's a world in which we only do two things in our lives: self care and service to others. And in that process, we see just so many of the problems we have today just disappear because they're we made them ourselves through a transactional mindset. So that's what I ultimately hope for my kids and then my grandkids is that that's the world they live in, um, where fear is not what dominates our culture. Mm. Aaron, this has been so fun. And I really, I hope that we can come back to the topic and talk a little bit about what you're hearing, uh, what we're both hearing, because I intend to, to yeah. go out into the world and talk more about purpose mindset um, and, and see how people react. And I hope we can come back and talk a little bit about that. No, I love it. And I'm just the beginning of my learning journey. And this is a nascent movement and just really hope like anyone who wants to be part of this, just um, be curious, ask tough questions. Let's find practices that are working. Let's find things that are not working. Um, it's the right goal. How to achieve it. Um, I think it's something that will emerge over the coming years. Great. Purposemindset.org. Yes. Purpose-mindset.org. Aaron, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Always, always a good time. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me. Mark Lesser, a learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.